my friend Dan Cox recommended this book to me, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. I thoroughly enjoyed the stories. It's written by uh, Colonel Chris Hadfield, and I really enjoyed his stories about space and the space program and all that it takes to be an astronaut. I especially was struck with them in light of what happened this last week. Uh, you may have heard that the uh, Soyuz capsule carrying the next crew to the International Space Station had to make an emergency landing, was not able to go because of problems. They're all safe, but it was really fascinating having read this to think of what was going on. And Colonel Hadfield's comments on wise living on Earth were also very useful to me. I really enjoyed the book. One of his key points is to enter any situation at a zero. And he explains what that means with a paragraph I copied into your notes. You got a worship guide when you came in. Open that worship guide up. Look on the left-hand side, and you'll see this paragraph from Colonel Hadfield. Over the years, I've realized that in a new situation, whether it involves an elevator or a rocket ship, you will almost certainly be viewed one of three ways. Uh, as a minus one, actively harmful, someone who creates problems, or as a zero, your impact is neutral, doesn't tip the balance one way or the other, or you'll be seen as a plus one, someone who actively adds value. Everyone wants to be a plus one, of course, but proclaiming your plus oneness at the outset almost guarantees you'll be perceived as a minus one, regardless of the skills you bring to the table or how you actually perform. This might seem self-evident, but it can't be because so many people do it, close quote. Scripture calls what he's talking about, entering at a zero, Scripture calls that humility. And here is my personal definition of humility. Humility means thinking correctly of self while thinking primarily of others. Thinking correctly of self while thinking primarily of others. Even if you are a clear plus one, and so many of you are, Humility demands that you defer to others as you establish your usefulness. For example, last year I received a bad review for my work speaking at a conference. Now, for years, I have taught the Bible at camps and conferences all over the world, and this was the first bad review I have ever gotten. Oh, most of the people gave me tens at this conference, which is nice, but one family gave me a three on a scale of ten, and here's what they wrote. The speaker served others with zeal and was a brilliant teacher, but it felt like he was presumptuous of acceptance. We didn't know him, but he seemed like he just expected us to like him. Ouch. Now, I know there are cranks in this world. Of course there are. And we should ne never let whiny complainers control our lives. But as I thought this through, I had to admit they were mostly correct. You see, what happened was... I came into that conference like a plus one. I knew what I was doing. I was very confident, and that's not bad, but I didn't take the time to be zero and establish relationships with people before I began to really teach. As my dad would say, I was full of myself. <clears throat> or one of his other favorite phrases was, you've begun to believe your own press clippings. Our elder Dan Southern had a great reminder about that in his book, uh, The Message of Leadership. Dan wrote, God doesn't read your press clippings, and if he did, he would not be very impressed. <laughs> a generation ago, the band Jefferson Starship sang it really well. They sang, there is real freedom at point zero. Any of you old enough to remember that album? Yeah. Oh, give me a hand. Oh, I love that album. 
All right, and even further back than that, the book of Proverbs walks us through important information about humility. Nothing against Colonel Hadfield or Jefferson Starship, but no one teaches humility as well as God. So, open your Bible to Hezekiah's collection of Solomonic Proverbs. Hezekiah and his men made this collection of Solomon's greatest hits, Proverbs 25 to 29. That's what we're studying right now. Turn there, and let's learn together. We're going to chapter 25, verses 6 and 7. Chapter 25, verses 6 and 7. Don't brag about yourself before the king, and don't stand in the place of the great, for it is better for him to say to you, come up here, than to demote you in plain view of a noble. Stop there. Bragging seems second nature to us Texans, but it really is a problem for all people, and human beings especially. You you like that slide? Texas, more majestic than your state since 1836. Um, we really like to brag to people in power. Uh, we, we want the attention of people that we think are great and powerful. We preen in front of celebrities thinking that we must look attractive when in reality we really stink. Uh, again, my dad, my dad said all this the best. I don't think anyone's ever beaten my dad at this. He said this, Wayne, being full of yourself means you're full of something else as well. <laughs> a- ask your parents. I, um, what is your go-to form of bragging? How do you preen? Think. Now, listen, here's, here's the way to get to this. Think about when you feel the most insecure, which, as our text says, is usually in the presence of royalty or celebrity, right? So, so when you feel the most insecure, what is your go-to form of bragging? Look up here. I've listed for you uh, A through J, some of the most popular forms of bragging. Are you a name dropper? B, do you tout your achievements? C, do you reminisce about the good old days? That's a really subtle form of bragging. Um, D, do you talk up the greatness of your family? E, do you put others down? Uh, a particularly nasty form of bragging, but nonetheless fairly popular. Uh, do you compare is F. G, do you extol how hard your life is? By the way, this one's really becoming very popular the last couple of decades. As, um, as Marxist thinking is working its way more and more into uh, American thought, especially for people under 40, uh, they, they begin, one of, one of the core tenets of Marxist thinking is that the oppressed person, the victim, is always right. Uh, the victim is morally superior to anyone else. So if you want to win, you need to be a victim. So because of that, this has become really popular, talking about how hard your life is, how much of a victim you are. H, do you show off? Is this your go-to form of bragging? Your, your power, ability, vocabulary, that's one that's pretty popular among this crowd, wealth or possessions. Do you pad your resume is I. And J is, are you a self-deprecator? In other words, do you put yourself down so others will disagree and praise you? By the way, on that last one, Fran Legman of our pulpit, team sent me a great meme. She sent me a picture of, uh, of Gene Wilder, and it says, please continue to brag about how modest and humble you are. <laughs> that is genius. All right. Every human deals with insecurity. Every one of us does, and thus every one of us struggles with some form of bragging. Horribly, I, I have done every one of these. Now, you great people are surely much more holy than I, but being human, at least one of these should apply to you. So, let's do this. Which letter is closest to you when you brag? As I'm going to go through the bragging checklist once again, and when I get to the one that you're most likely to do, raise your hand. You ready? Let's be honest. We're among family here. Are you a name dropper? Raise your hand. A. All right. B. Uh, do you tout your achievements? All right. C. Do you reminisce about the good old days? Yeah. <laughs> that happened last hour. Do not raise your spouse's hand. 
this is for you. Talk about the greatness of your family. As Christmas cards are about to come out, you talk about the greatness of your family. All right, yeah. Do you put others down? Yeah. Uh, do you compare? Comparison. Yeah, all right. Extol how hard your life is? Yep, all right. Show off power, vocabulary, wealth, possessions, etc. especially when you're pressured. Uh, do you pad your resume? Okay, don't raise your hand for that one because you might get fired. All right, just go back and fix it. And self-deprecation. Anybody do self-deprecation? All right, very good. Okay, the results are clear in the text and in our lives. What happens is, you see what the king does? The bragger gets deflated. Okay, um, think, think of it like this. Look, yeah, here it is. Okay, so when, when you were a kid, did y'all have fun with balloons? I mean, we could have hours of fun with a balloon. I just loved them. Okay, so you've got a balloon, and you blow it up. But you haven't tied it off, okay? You've not tied it off. You just walk around with your balloon like this. Every brother in the world, every brother in the world wants to do what? You're just walking around with this. Go ahead. Every, every brother wants to do what? Do, yeah. <laughs> That's what they want to do. All right, they're going to knock it out of your hand and deflate you. I can't believe you made it land back on the stage. That was really amazing. That's quite good. All right, you, you, you get the point. That's why people in authority, look at the text, that's why they naturally want to deflate us when we're spouting off our hot air about how big we are. It's just natural. They want to deflate you, right? Now, for each of these humility problems mentioned, Proverbs 25 to 29, God's going to provide a solution. The Lord doesn't just expose our problems. He, he always provides the answer. He, he shapes us with practices that change us forever. For example, in response to my plus one foolishness at that, uh, at that camp, God prompted my friend Daniel Cooper to send this picture and post it uh, online on my Facebook page. It says, when it's Pastor Appreciation Month, but you want to keep him humble. And the t-shirt says, world's okayest pastor. That's awesome. <laughs> Love that. Seriously, the solution for us braggarts is actually pretty simple. Be closed mouth regarding your own greatness. Look up here. Proverbs 27, verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. When I read this verse, I immediately, I immediately think of George. Back in the uh, late 1980s, Jana and I sat next to George often at church. He was a wise kind, middle-aged fellow. We really enjoyed talking with him. He was just so interested in our lives, such a sweet man. One day we were at church um, at a fellowship dinner, and a guy came up and he congratulated George on the sale of his company. And I said, oh, what company do you own? He said, oh, it's a little firm I founded called Electrodata. And the guy, the stranger, laughed, and he said, little firm? Don't you know George here invented the digital watch? And he did. That's Proverbs 27 too. Now you know the idea became summarized in English-speaking cultures with the phrase, don't toot your own horn. Do you know why that came into our culture that way? It's because of a guy named Miles Coverdale. Miles Coverdale was an English Christian, famous for producing an early form of the Bible in English. But in 1540, Miles Coverdale wrote a, a really cool book on the Psalms and Proverbs in which he made all these comments in the margin. And in all of his comments in the margin. And in the margin on this verse, Miles Coverdale wrote this, Exalt not ye your own horn. It's the first appearance of the phrase. He went on to explain that just as it would be unseemly for a king entering a city to grab the trumpet and, to, and to, to be the fanfare, blow the fanfare for his own entrance, that would be very unseemly. He said, in the same way, it's inappropriate for a person to praise himself. So exalt not ye your own horn. And, and when we don't care about praise, 
When we don't worry about it, it actually positions us to receive it, which is what the text is telling us. Listen to this story. Another story from astronaut uh, Hadfield. Um, near the end of his book, he says this. One benefit of aiming to be a zero, it's an attainable goal. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> Plus, it's often a good way to get to plus one. If you're really observing and trying to learn rather than seeking to impress, you may actually get the chance to do something useful. For instance, before I'd ever flown in space, I was in a shuttle entry simulator with two very experienced astronauts. I was in student mode, keeping my eyes open and my mouth shut, when the commander reached up to turn something on. Because I was watching so closely, I knew without a doubt that he was about to press the wrong button. So I said, wait, that's not the right one. No big deal. He readjusted. The sim went on. I didn't say anything else about it, nor did anyone else. A few months later, though, we happened to be at the Cape together for a launch, talking to the head of the Johnson Space Center. When, with no prompting or warning, that commander began extolling my powers of observation for having caught his error in the simulation, I got my first mission to space shortly thereafter. There may not be a connection, but one thing is certain. Aiming to be a zero didn't hurt my chances. Amen? But here's the difficult part. Many people, like you folks, are remarkably successful. I mean, I look out at this group and I see people who, who have, in various ways and means, quite frankly, achieved excellence. And you have. And, and that's wonderful. But that brings up a problem. And I know you're thinking about it in the uh, Batman voice that you use in your head. You're asking, does that mean I should play down my own accomplishments? Should I lie? Good question, Bruce. No, don't lie. Humility does not mean one dismisses achievement. To denigrate your genuine achievements is not humility. In fact, that is false. True humility is never aided by lying. When you're good at something, when you have developed a positive character trait, when you are gifted in some way, don't lie about it. When you're asked, tell the truth. When you have opportunity to, to contribute, don't hold back. When, when somebody's about to press the wrong button, speak up. But being honest and contributing, by being honest and contributing, listen, we exalt the Lord who gives us all these gifts. By being honest and contributing, we exalt God. However, being honest is not the same as bragging. Praising yourself is not only unseemly, what does it do? The most serious thing it does, it takes the focus away from God where it belongs and puts it on you. Hadfield has a really great insight on this. Look, look what he says. Even if you've been a plus one in a certain role, maybe especially if you've been a plus one, once your stint is over, it's time to be a zero again. I quickly learned that as an ex-whatever, you only get so many golden opportunities to keep your mouth shut, and you should take advantage of every single one, close quote. Let us take advantage of every opportunity, every golden opportunity to keep mum about our own prowess, all God's people said. Now, there's another problem that arises when we're full of ourselves, overconfident, puffed up. We get hasty. And hastiness can lead to ruin. That's the title on the right side of our notes. Look there. It's also the issue in the next verses of Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25, verses 8 through 10. Hastiness can lead to ruin. Verse 8. Don't take a matter to court hastily. Otherwise, what will you do afterward if your opponent humiliates you? Make your case with your opponent without revealing another's secret. Otherwise, the one who hears will disgrace you, and you'll never live it down. 
Now, what's going on here? This seems kind of convoluted. Sid Buzzle, I think, does a really nice job cutting through it. Look what he says in his book on Proverbs. Verse 8 warns against hastily taking another person to court. The reason is that the plaintiff may lose the case and be ashamed for what he thought he saw may not be what actually took place. In providing evidence against a neighbor in a court case, a plaintiff may be forced to betray a friend's confidence, which is the issue in verses 9 through 10. As a result, that friend may shame him and the plaintiff may have an irretrievable loss of reputation. And then he summarizes with a really good sentence. It is risky business to accuse others publicly. Our hubris can make us hasty. Think of Elon Musk, convinced that he is the smartest guy in every room, and he probably is. Mr. Musk began making precipitous comments a few years ago, making really hasty comments about people and situations all the time. Sid Buzzle said, it's risky business to accuse others publicly. Boy, has Elon Musk learned that. As one of many humiliations that he has faced recently, the, the brilliant Mr. Musk was forced to resign the chairmanship of his own company in order to avoid SEC violations. And the only reason there were securities violations was because of his own unrestricted big mouth. A recent magazine story cover was graced with this headline. It said, Elon Musk, the visionary entrepreneur, seeks to ferry mankind to Mars and investors to prosperity. His ego may be all that stands in the way, close quote. Sadly, hastiness is pushed, though, by many facets of our culture. Many, many parts of our culture push. Look, here's the case of all these prideful tendencies that are revealed in Hezekiah's collection. Hastiness is often exalted by the culture in which you live. Just think about our own culture. Kids are rushed to grow up, right? That's creepy. Little kids are rushed to grow up. Students cram for tests. Everything's in a rush. Adults are impatient, especially waiting for an internet connection, right? But the results demonstrate that rushing always catches up with you. Cramming fails. Impatience wounds. Impatience wounds people you and those around you, and hasty lawsuits backfire. For example, it's a fascinating story. There's a church that I have consulted for just a tiny bit recently, really like this guy, this church planter, and they had a really serious situation. There was a company that brought a lawsuit against this little church plant because the company said that they had copyright name infringement over that company's name. That company should have stopped and thought before they filed suit. They should have thought it through. Within just a couple of weeks, here's what the U.S. judge handed down against that company. They owed the church $50,000 in damages. They had to pay all of their attorney's fees, and they had to pay for the church's rebranding efforts. Not bad. Wish we could get sued like that. Anyway, um, <laughs> sorry. And then there's, there's this example from Jonathan Satchel of our pulpit team. He wrote me and he said, Wayne, another great picture of hastiness catching up to a person is in the dark night. When Wayne Enterprises' attorney finds out who Batman really is, the lawyer then tries to blackmail Bruce Wayne before Mr. Fox explains what a bad idea that is. Take a look. You want him to do the diligence on the LSI Holdings deal again? Well, I found some irregularities. Their CEO is in police custody. No, not with their numbers, with yours. Applied sciences, whole division of Wayne Enterprises just disappeared overnight. I went down to the archives and I started pulling some old files. Don't tell me you didn't recognize your baby out there pancaking cop cars on the evening news. Now, you got the entire R&D department burning through cash, claiming uh, it's related to cell phones for the army. What are you building for him now? A uh, rocket ship? 
I want $10 million a year for the rest of my life. Let me get this straight. You think that your client, one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the world, is secretly a vigilante who spends his nights beating criminals to a pulp with his bare hands? And your plan is to blackmail this person? to blackmail this person? So tell me, friends, what is something that proud people, n- not us, of course, other people, um, what is something that proud people tend to do hastily? Think about it. What's something proud people tend to do hastily? Raise your hands. Raise your hand, and let me call on you as I see hands go up, and tell me something proud people tend to do hastily. What? What's that? Scold others. Very good. Yeah. All right. What else? Yeah. Draw conclusions. Well said. Give me another one. Yes. It's so convicting. It's what I do for a living. Thank you so much for bringing that up. He said, he said, answer questions you don't really know everything about or something like that. I'm trying to ignore it. Yes, very good answer. Excellent. Give me another one. What else? Somebody over here. Y'all are letting me down. Come on. What's something proud people do too quickly? Yeah. Assume they've got it. I got it. I got it. Now, here's what I'm most pleased with. I, I wanted to make sure every part of the auditorium answered, but I was terrified that some married couple, one of them was going to say, get married, and I, that would really have been awful, and thank God you didn't. That's good. All right. The solution to our hastiness is over in chapter 29. In fact, I'd like you to turn there. Let's leave 25. Go over to chapter 29. We're going to read 20 and 23. 20 and 23 of chapter 29. Do you see a man who speaks too soon? There's more hope for a fool than for him. And down to verse 23 for our solution. A person's pride will humble him, but a humble spirit will gain honor. Don't speak before you think. So much pain in my life could have been avoided had I yielded to God's wisdom in that proverb. Because look at it, the inverse alignment is inevitable. The humble person isn't rash and will get honor. The prideful person is hasty and will be deflated. It's sort of a spiritual Henry's law. Um, Henry's law describes how the pressure of the gas in a liquid is dependent on the pressure of the gas above the liquid. Um, This explains why your two-liter Dr. Pepper goes flat, okay? That when you get the two-liters Dr. Pepper, the company has put pressurized CO2 above the liquid, and it's so heavy that it keeps all the CO2 in the liquid down, Henry's law. Once you open it and that heavy CO2 is released, then the space has to be filled by the CO2 bubbling up out of your Dr. Pepper. And that's why when you come back the next time, you say, oh my goodness, it's flat. It's no longer pressurized. Now, of course, I know what you're thinking. In your Batman voice, you're thinking, what does it have to do with Proverbs? Good question. Thank you, Batman. I'm glad you asked. When I am prideful, when I am full of hot air, and I just need to spout off my thoughts, it reduces my standing. I look foolish. I go flat. My reserves cannot sufficiently fill the empty space. The humble spirit, the person who waits and shares judiciously, gains honor. People turn to him for refreshment instead of the flat guy who spewed everything out. Probably the finest example of humble judiciousness ever in literature is Treebeard. 
Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien invented a character who, in his great age and wisdom, was determined not to be hasty, right? By the way, the depiction of Treebeard in the amazing Peter Jackson films was one of the only serious flaws in those movies. It was actually Treebeard's deliberateness that led to the wise action and changed everything for good. It was Treebeard's lack of hastiness that led to the overthrow of Saruman. The hobbits did not convince Treebeard to turn around. That's not what happened in the book. It was the Ents idea because they had time to think things through. And in fact, it was precisely because the hobbits entered the forest at zero. They were the only ones who entered the Fanghorn Forest at zero that they became plus ones in Treebeard's work. Keep quiet. Don't rush things ahead. Now, flip back to chapter 27 where Solomon again picks up the theme of false bravado. 27 verse 1. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day might bring. Proud assumptions make for unpreparedness. Proud assumptions make for unpreparedness. That's Solomon's point. When we pridefully assume, we become unprepared for anything that doesn't go our way through the day. Here's a great example. While he was a pilot in the Canadian military, uh, Colonel Hadfoyle did a really poor job on one of his instrument exam flights. Um, He passed, but the mistakes he made that day could have ended his astronaut aspirations forever. In response, he wrote this. Look what he wrote. He said, The problem was simple. I decided I was already a pretty good pilot, good enough that I didn't need to fret over every last detail. But if you're striving for excellence, whether it's in playing the guitar or flying a jet, there is no such thing as over-preparation. In my next line of work, it wasn't even optional. An astronaut who doesn't sweat the small stuff is a dead astronaut, close quote. Proud assumptions make for unpreparedness, which can be disastrous. Um, For example, if you were really good at some sport when you were a youth, raise your hand. You were good at a sport when you were a youth. Mike, raise your hand. Good heavens. Get your hand up. Thank you. All right. Okay. Now, think about this. Those of you who raised your hand, did you ever have this experience where you're cruising along and all of a sudden you get defeated by someone you should have beaten? I mean, you were not bragging, just in all sincerity, you were much better than this person, but you got whipped. Did you ever have that experience? Raise your hand. Okay. What happened? A lot of times what happened was that you coasted. You assumed victory, and so you stopped growing. You stopped stretching. You stopped preparing well for the next day. Same, things happen, th- same thing happens to smart kids. You know, smart kids coast all through primary school, often through secondary school, and then they get smacked in college or in grad school because they finally run into something that they don't know and they've never learned how to study. Again, astronaut Hadfield nails it. I put this in your notes. I liked it so much. He said, early success is a terrible teacher. You're essentially being rewarded for a lack of preparation. So when you find yourself in a situation where you must prepare, you can't do it. You don't know how. Close quote. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day might bring. Instead, humbly work hard so you are prepared. And do your preparation in joyful trust of God. That's why James uh, develops the idea this way. New Testament, take a look. James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you're like smoke that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, the point in James is not to avoid planning. Many, many places in Scripture command us to to prepare, but that preparation must be made in humility before the sovereign Lord. Go back to Proverbs 27.1. I want you to look at the Hebrew. Uh, Yalad is the root word that we render uh, might bring. 
This is fascinating. It's a word that appears hundreds of times, employed hundreds of times in the Old Testament for childbirth. Literally. Think about that. Here's what God is saying through Solomon. You don't know any more about tomorrow than you know about the exact moment when a baby's coming. You better plan and be ready because, in the days before Pitocin, the hour of that blessing is completely beyond your control. Got it? By the way, Isaiah is going to pick this up. Isaiah really likes this, and he picks this up, and he uses Yalad in the same fashion. He likes how Solomon and Hezekiah use it, and so he uses it to describe the second coming of Messiah Jesus. Isaiah says, stop assuming you're okay and start trusting Messiah. Do everything and trust the Messiah so you can be ready for the birthday of judgment. Now, the saddest part is that you and I often don't recognize how ridiculous our assumptions are. Look up here, Proverbs 28, 11. A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has discernment sees through him. We assume that because we're blessed, we must be wise. Thus, we don't need to humbly prepare, right? For example, people assume the wealthy must de facto be wise. Horribly, the wealthy sometimes believe this as well. That's why there are so many formerly wealthy people in the world, right? They don't seek wisdom. They don't prepare joyfully trusting God. What we do is we trust our own eyes instead. Remember what we learned earlier in this series. Look, look, when you see that construction, in his own eyes, Whenever you see that in Hebrew, it indicates a person's self-concept. We borrowed the idea in our language. It kind of makes sense to us. But there is a brilliant, subtle play going on that doesn't show up in the English. The Semitic term for I is ein. It was your fancy word not too many days ago, so you get to say it again. On the count of three, you get to say the Hebrew word ein. One, two, three. Ein, mein Herr. Very good. All right, ein. Ein is the word for, for I. However, ein is also the exact same word is used for a spring, Living water. Now, in the Bible, living water is water that's under its own control. It is flowing under its own power, okay? So, so when somebody, when a Hebrew writes wise in his own eyes, it's somebody who thinks that he or she is their own source. They are their own living water, their own wellspring of life. The play and movie Fiddler on the Roof, I think, um, bring this out perfectly. Tevya is a Russian Jewish peasant. He is discerning and he is wise. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof? You have the play of the movie? Don't you love Tevya? Just you fall in love with Tevya. I want to show you a brief clip. In this clip, uh, Tevya is fantasizing about being rich. And he shows you in this one line you're going to hear that he sees right through the lie of wealth or any other blessing. It's not just wealth. Any blessing that somehow because I'm blessed, that means I'm wise. Listen and look. The most important man in town will come to fawn on me. They will ask me to advise them like a Solomon the wise. If you please, Rebetavia, pardon me, Rebetavia. Posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes. Now listen, listen, here's the key. And it won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. (laughs) When you're rich, they think you really know. Tevye makes fun of that lie. That wealth or any other blessing automatically defers wisdom. And yet, I'm telling you folks, this is a struggle for every one of us, especially in our areas of success. 
Our proud assumptions in our areas of success make for unpreparedness. So what can we do? Solution is laid out in Proverbs 28, verse 26. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. I don't have time to explain why. The ESV is much better on this one verse. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. We have a very clear dichotomy here. Look at it. Trust in your own mind, and it could be heart. Leb, the Hebrew, can be translated either way. Trust in your own mind or heart, and you're a fool. Pride is the path to foolishness. By contrast, wisdom brings deliverance. Walking, that's, a, that's living. That's a euphemism for living in Hebrew. Walking wisely brings deliverance. Deliverance from self, deliverance from the world, deliverance from the enemy. But where is wisdom? Where is this wisdom in which I should walk? Well, the context of Proverbs tells us. It's the fear of the Lord. You see, the broader context of the book of Proverbs is really important here. The thesis of Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, read it with me, please, everyone together. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now get this. This is so cool. This is so cool. Look, the word we translate discipline is musar. Musar. It, 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 its core meaning is preparation. Now, it, your Bible may translate it instruction, chastisement, discipline. Those are all parts of the idea. Preparation. So, so what was our hubristic, hubristic problem in Proverbs 27.1? Prideful assumptions lead to a lack of preparation, right? Well, that's exactly what the theme verse of the whole book is saying. Proverbs 1.7 declares that by nature, we fools hate musar. We hate preparation, discipline. We hate yielding to God's instruction. So take that back to our solution verse, Proverbs 28, 26, and here's what we see. The fool trusts his own mind. He is his own spring of life, and he hates musar, hates preparation. The wise walks in awe of the Lord and is delivered by wise preparation. Now, there are two massively important applications that follow this, one for believers in Jesus Christ and one for non-Christians. For believers in Jesus, we must be preparing ourselves for His return. Remember what I told you Isaiah says? The Messiah Jesus promises to come back, and He will reward those who fit themselves for His eternal service. By developing our character, by, by good deeds done in God's grace, by holding to His Word, by joining in His redeemed community, by yielding to His Spirit, Christians build lives that last and are prepared for forever. All God's people said? So how prepared are we? Christians, look, you Christians, are you ready for this? The judgment seat of Christ. You see, at the judgment seat of Christ, all Christians are going to stand there, each one of us, and there are going to be rewards gained and rewards lost for eternity. In what ways are you trusting your own self and hating musar, hating the preparation and the discipline that is necessary for that to be the best possible experience for you? Please stop assuming. Stop trusting yourself. Quit being wise in your own eyes. Be in awe of God instead. And for non-Christians, the Bible prophesies a totally different judgment. The great white throne judgment is for non-Christians. That's where every non-Christian person is given a given account before Jesus. None of them are going to be found acceptable because everyone at that judgment has rejected Jesus as Savior. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, so loves you that He came to this earth and He died in your place paying for your sins, and He rose from the dead, ensuring eternal life for anyone who will believe on Him. All who reject Him are condemned. Those who trust Him are delivered. They're delivered by believing in God's salvation instead of their own capacity. Please do not remain foolish. 
trust in Jesus right now. Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for anyone who is studying with me, wherever they are, that doesn't know Jesus as Savior, and I beg you to draw them to you right now. I thank you for your love for them, and I pray that you will open their eyes. Friend, listen, you, you have got to start admitting that you're a fool, because you are. It's a fact. So am I. Biblically, we are fools. We, we think we are the wellspring. We are the arbiter of truth. We think that, oh my goodness, we think that we really know. And yet you know that what Scripture says is true. That you and I are lost and hopeless without salvation in Jesus. We cannot earn our own way to God. So do this. Talk to God right now and tell Him, I, a sinner, come to you, God. And I tell you that I cannot rescue myself. I cannot deliver myself. Nor can any system, nor can any structure of works, but your love has given me deliverance. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on that cross for me. I believe he rose from the dead so that if I trust in him, I have everlasting life. I trust him to pay for my sins. I submit myself to you. I believe on, I rest on you. And I praise you and thank you that you have saved me. Through your grace, not through any effort of mine. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, if you just received him as Savior, raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Good for you. Praise God. Lord, I pray for all these who are Christians already. And I'm, Lord, I'm really concerned for us. These are a really, really sharp bunch of people. They are, they really are blessed in so many ways. And we praise you for that. But golly, it's hard. I mean, we really do musar. We, we, we hate musar. We don't want to submit to you and prepare by your grace. We, we think we're pretty sharp, which I know is absurd, but it's tough. So I beg you to break through and humble me and humble my brothers and sisters that we might be lifted up by your mighty hand instead of being flat, ugly Dr. Pepper. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study, and we submit ourselves to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.